Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Pagini. For the remainder of our first series, we're turning to our big annual lectures hosted in London, Edinburgh, Cardiff and Dublin, finishing up with our annual debate. Today we have the 2021 Dublin lecture, delivered by Axel Honneth. Axel will be taking a look at the concept of work and how it has been shaped by questionable assumptions about what has value and what it means to be valuable. Axel Honneth holds professorships at both Columbia University and the Goethe Universität Frankfurt am Main. His work focuses on social, political and moral philosophy, especially relations of power, recognition and respect. One of his core arguments is for the priority of intersubjective relationships of recognition in understanding social relations. Axel's talk is longer than most in this series, and although it is almost entirely jargon-free, I didn't get to tell him my golden rule of public philosophy, which is that the words epistemic and normative really are jargon, a fact that in my experience almost no philosopher realises. So for those unfamiliar with the terms, epistemic simply means concerning knowledge, and normative refers to the domains of should and ought rather than is and is not. If you've got these two terms clear in your mind, I can assure you everything else will be perfectly intelligible. After Axel's talk, there was discussion featuring questions from our live online audience, chaired by Meeve Cook, head of the School of Philosophy at University College Dublin, who hosted the lecture. Before that, here's Axel Honneth on a short history of a modern concept. Neither the thinkers of antiquity nor those of the Middle Ages exhibited a great theoretical interest in the social value or even the ethical significance of labor. Throughout this long period of history, the labor an individual had to carry out to make a living and thus under compulsion was understood more or less solely as a heavy burden. It signified daily toil and the state of personal dependency attaching to lowly social rank. Consequently, there was no cause to subject labor to any kind of moral consideration. Indeed, as the historian Moses Finlay reports, neither in Greek nor Latin was there a word with which to express the general notion of labor or the concept of labor as a general social function, end of quote. Famously, with the advent of modernity, the very opposite begins to become the case. In this period, in the wake of various intersecting processes of cultural re-evaluation and economic transformation, labor developed into a positive credential of free existence and a presupposition of social integrity. The Protestant ethic led to a gradual upgrading of the value of labor because it was interpreted as a sign that one possessed a capacity for inner-worldly asceticism in the course of the establishment of capitalist economic practices the liberation of labor from personal dependency in legal terms gave rise to the idea that gainful work could henceforth be proof of a free decision, and it thus provided the precondition of individual independence. And over time, the more the intellectual union between these two revolutions was strengthened, 
the more it would go on to influence the cultural self-understanding of modern societies in the capitalist West. What was previously the sheer necessity of earning a daily crust was now understood as proof of social emancipation and freedom. Nobody provided a better conceptualization of this transformed self-conception than Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who devoted an entire chapter in his philosophy of right to the emancipatory value of labor. Here he tells us that every male member, I'm uh, adding, he even not thought it necessary to add that workers have to be male. He tells us that every male member of civil society is somebody, to quote him, through his competence and his, I quote, regular income and means of support, which means possesses the social status of a full-fledged citizen and will find his honor in this recognized existence as a professional. End of quote. Nevertheless, despite this newfound appreciation of the value of labor, from the very beginning it remained utterly unclear which of the countless activities pursued in gradually industrializing modern societies actually fell within this normatively distinguished category. The Protestant ethic, with its orientation to inner-worldly asceticism and the virtue of industriousness, clearly operated with quite different normative standards to, for example, emerging economic theory. The latter initially sought to hold fast to the criterion of contractually agreed labor, subject to no external pressures, and it thus excluded any form of coerced activity from its purview. Amongst these initial confusions and differences of opinion, however, a philosophical discourse soon began to take hold, thereby loosely connected leading representatives of the field across several countries sought to determine the precise characteristics of this new status-conferring labor, conferring labor, and wherein exactly its particular worth might consist. The result of this intellectual exchange, which began with John Locke and continued through to Karl Marx and Hannah Arendt, was a tacit, but for that reason all the more consequential, agreement about a certain model of labor, central to which was the following condition. Labor had to possess the property of remolding a physical object with the aim of producing a saleable commodity or consumer good. One consequence of this conception, however, whether intended or not, was that activities and performances of countless other kinds, be they in the domain of service work, care or trade, could no longer count as labor in the original sense, and so quickly vanished into a conceptual no man's land. Nevertheless, public opinion soon followed the conclusions of the philosophical discourse. It allowed itself to be guided by the notion that, at bottom, labor consisted solely in the physical transformation of an object with the goal of producing a consumable material good. Unfolding in the shadow of these reductionist beginnings, the history of modernity in the 20th century has also become a history of the struggle of the meaning of labor. Each of its periods and epochs have been stemmed 
albeit subliminally, by conflicts over whether other kinds of socially necessary activity deserves to be perceived and socially recognized as labor. The aim of my lecture is to provide a brief account of the history of this debate surrounding the concept of labor and its fields of associations. It will stop at a few of the stations along the way of the hard-won extension of the concept before asking in a second part whether and how it might still be meaningfully employed without fail, falling victim to hopeless indeterminacy. So my lecture will have these two parts. In the first part, I reconstruct uh, very quickly different stations in the debates and conflicts about the meaning of work. And in the second part, I will then prove whether the extension of the notion of labor, which we can experience today, leads to difficulties in defining what labor is. And I will stop with a proposal how to solve that problem. So first part, the concept of labor, as it first entered modern social theory, had an astonishingly narrow scope. John Locke already began to shape this extremely restricted notion when, in his second treatise on government, he set about trying to ground the claim to property. This, said the English philosopher, results from labor, which, through adding something to an object, through a process of transformation, creates an additional value. This, in turn, can then count as the source of the rightful possession of the manufactured product. Into this foundational theory of the value of labor, which would even serve as a model for Marx approximately 200 years later, there flowed almost imperceptibly a notion of labor that attends almost exclusively to the aspects of production and physical transformation. All performances that do not follow such a pattern and thus do not result in the manufacture of a product are left out of the definition, meaning that activities such as service work, the provision of care, delivery and supply cannot be regarded as labor in the true or strict sense. The inadequacy of Locke's restriction immediately becomes clear when one considers the employment relations of his time. Agriculture and manual craftsmanship, activities to which Locke's definition clearly applies, did indeed remain the majority occupations of workers in 17th century England. Yet countless men and women were at the same time engaged in service work, from cooking and cleaning for wealthy families, to delivering messages and bed nursing, and thus not with the manufacture of products. If one also takes into account how even on the land, much of the work carried out by farmhands and maids did not consist in assisting in agricultural production per se, but in procuring and delivering goods, cooking and tending cattle, the uh, egregiousness of Locke's concept of labor stares one in the face. As though it were the most obvious thing in the world, he refuses to allow all these service-based performances to count as labor, even though they were just as indispensable for the maintenance of economic and social life as 
production or fabrication. Making activities of physical transformation the presupposition of property meant linking labor exclusively with a relation to objects of production and thus surreptitiously excluding from its definition all those preparatory and auxiliary activities that enable process of production to occur in the first place. The shadow that thereby fell over domestic and service workers was so dark that the following two centuries would have difficulty casting light in such obscure corners as cooking, cleaning, and transportation. What John Locke began, Adam Smith, despite various grave concerns and internal contradictions, would continue. At first, he encountered difficulties with the question of how best to understand labor, because he began by operating with two quite different conceptions of the use of social labor. On the one hand, he sought to classify as labor any performance that contributes in any way whatsoever to the satisfaction of subjectively defined desires for a pleasant and agreeable life. On the other hand, he wanted to restrict his classification to those activities that made a productive contribution to the overall increase of economic welfare. The first conception would have meant counting all the service work of the time as labor in the full sense of the term, since they provided the population with the desired utility. The second, however, would have reserved the category only for activities that add to the economic value of an object by subject subjecting it to a process of transformation. Sensing the tension between these two ideas, and it's very obvious that Smith sees or perceives this tension. Sensing the tension between these two ideas, Smith ultimately comes down on the second mm -hmm. chain of associations. And I quote now from The Wealth of Nations, the labor of some of the most respectable orders in the society is, like that of menial servants, unproductive of any value and does not fix or realize itself in any permanent subject or vendable commodity which endures over the labor is which endures after that labor is passed and for which an equal quantity of labor could afterwards be procured end of quote here smith has entirely forgotten what he had previously said about the productivity of work namely that it can be measured solely by its social utility regardless of what kind so like Locke before him he too succumbed to the tendency of viewing only that which creates a vendable commodity as labor in the true sense. Nevertheless, in an important respect, Smith was one step ahead of Locke. He registered quite how large a space was occupied by service work in both private households and public life in the overall fabric of employment relations. He could hardly overlook how the increasing wealth of the aristocratic and bourgeois classes of his day went along with a steady increase in the number of domestic workers required in kitchens, gardens, dressing rooms, and stables. So much so, in fact, that such work would account for almost half of the employment in Europe by the beginning of the 19th century. Smith did not simply fail to recognize this great mass of the employed, but although he was certainly alive to their existence, he massively devalued their contribution. For Smith, 
because they were occupied with providing more or less useful services rather than with the manufacture of products, they were of only secondary significance for general social prosperity. One could be forgiven for thinking that the enormous increase in service work in the 19th century, shortly after 1900, domestic labor alone constituted the most extensive category of employment in England, would force a widening of the dominant concept of labor so that it might correspond to social reality. But one would be mistaken. After Smith, the treatment of the concept of labor was practically the opposite of what a theoretical consideration of the expanding quantity of service work would have demanded. This was especially true of the German social philosophy of Hegel and Marx. Both thinkers take over Locke's terms of reference. Only they gave them an anthropological turn and thereby once again deepened the connection between work and production. In Hegel's philosophy of right, the Lockean conception re surfaces as an essential element of his philosophy of spirit. Labor, he maintains, has a formative function for self-consciousness because labor is a means by which a subject objectifies himself in an external thing and thereby has his own powers and capacities reflected back to him. With this idea of building or education through objectification, Hegel establishes such a fundamental connection between labor and the process of producing or manufacturing an object that all other activities are bound to appear ultimately stale and mindless by contrast. Accordingly, when he gives his account of the estates of modern societies in his philosophy of right, he brands the labor of the farmer as merely receptive and unreflective and does not even think that domestic stuff in private households merit a mention, even though he himself famously employed them. Actual labor, labor which therefore secures honor and independence, is that the formative activity of the craftsman or industrial producer. Just a few years after Hegel's death, and thus in Marx's lifetime, the number of service occupations increased once more. The expansion of trade, commerce, and banking required entirely new services, such as in accounting, sales, and transportation. Nobody employed in these fields of activity engages in the manufacture of any kind of product, whereby one might recognize one's own intellectual capacities in the emerging and finished article. And yet, in his economic and philosophical manuscripts, Marx followed Hegel by once again, tailoring his concept of labor to the production of objects. Concerning the activity by which the human species distinguishes itself from animals, we read that man, and I quote, duplicates himself in labor, not only as in consciousness intellectually, but also actively in reality. And therefore he contemplates himself in a world that he has created. Marx takes from Hegel the idea that all genuine labor is objectification, whilst naturally departing from his predecessor in his insistence that such mirroring of one's essential powers in the manufactured product is impossible under capitalist conditions of production, and that it therefore has to be understood as alienated in capitalism. 
Yet the more Marx developed his own approach to political economy, the more he emphasized the productive, so plus value generating character of such alienated industrial labor. In contrast to Smith's before him, of course, Marx stressed how this surplus value was retained by private capital. Yet like Smith, his category of productivity bracketed out all services as mere external factors, however much they might be indispensable preconditions manufacturing consumer goods, be it preparing food for the workforce, transportation of raw materials, or calculating profit margins. In short, everything that would have to be counted amongst the necessary infrastructure of production. The arguments we find in the tradition, stretching from Locke to Marx, thus characterize these kinds of activity as having, as having a two-fold deficiency. On the one hand, they cannot count as labor in the original sense, since they lack any directly productive character, the character of manufacturing an object. On the other hand, they do not seem to contribute anything to the general increase in welfare because they are incapable of generating any saleable commodity. This conceptual marginalization helped to create a social imaginary with a downright paradoxical character. Although industrial labor remained only a vanishingly small sphere of employment throughout the entire 19th century, it was made central to the cultural self-understanding of the societies of the day. Even the general population swiftly became willing subscribers to the myth of the dominance of industrial labor. People began to conceive of their societies as industrial labor societies, although they could have had but a dim present presentment of the true reality of such a thing. They believed in the driving, indeed revolutionary force of the proletariat, even though the workers' movement was initially advanced primarily by class-conscious craftsmen. And they simply forgot how the lower classes essentially owed the few comforts of their social life to agricultural labor, whilst the luxury and leisure enjoyed by the upper classes was also dependent on domestic servants and a whole array of administrative activities. A side effect of this strange inversion was that no thinker of stature was prepared to acknowledge the particular quality and nature of service work. To be sure, almost every bourgeois realist novel featured dozens of cooks, domestic servants, governesses, coachmen, and maids quietly working away in the background. Think of certain series we know, like Downton Abbey, huh? thousands of service people in the background, but no reflection of it in social theory. Indeed, in his attempts to depict the world of work of late 19th century France, Emile Zola, the French writer, erected a literary memorial to the saleswoman, the retailer, and the merchant. But there was nobody within either social philosophy or the emerging social sciences who evinced the slightest interest in the question of whether typical service occupations might have particular features meriting closer analysis. There was thus no attempt to distinguish between personal and administrative services to stress how the former require empathetic interpersonal engagement 
and thus the acquisition of communicative skills, whilst the latter involves the mastery of symbols and methods of tabulation. Nor was any attention paid to the distinctive rhythm of such activities, which were not dictated by that of machines and thus allowed greater opportunities for occasional self-direction. All these peculiarities of service performances remained theoretically unexplored, victims of an exclusive concentration on industrial production, which contrary to all the evidence was taken as a standard kind of employment amongst the laboring masses. It took many years for service work to emerge from the long shadow cast by the dominant concept of labor and thus to enter public consciousness. However, the initial impetus for this shift came not from the service workers themselves, a much too large and diverse group who have common concerns, but from sociology, even if it focused at first on, on only a small segment of the enormous mass of workers employed in the service sector. At the beginning of the 20th century, under the influence of Max Weber, there was a realization that the previous decades had been not only a phase of increasing industrialization, but at least as much one of increasing bureaucratization. This was a turning point. Now, for the first time, the wider public was able to see the vast quantity of work that needed to be performed in administrative centers, private enterprises, banks, and insurance companies in order to maintain the social infrastructure and secure economic transactions. The administrative sector was not exactly cast in a benign light, however. Weber had already depicted administrators as uncreative, peculiarly soulless, and rule-obsessed. Yet even such unflattering intention sufficed, finally, to correct the widespread misconception that social reproduction and prosperity was due solely to industrial-based labor. Captured under the umbrella term bureaucracy or bureaucratic administration, administrative services were now placed firmly in the sphere of activities essential to social reproduction and understood as typical function of employees or civil servants. Even at that time, it was far from clear why the term employee was chosen, despite the fact that non-state employees formally had to count as free wage laborers who therefore performed their work for a contractually agreed wage. To this day, the unofficial and barely plausible explanation for this designation is that it helped to emphasize its distinctness from the manual blue-color labor of the true workforce. However, this new found if ambivalent appreciation for service work continued to exclude the personal services carried out in private households, in health and social services, and in education and hospitality. However great the number of people employed in these sectors, indeed, however much that number continued to grow at the turn of the century, there remained a failure to come to terms with the extent to which such activities, so indispensable for social re reproduction, were so poorly compensated. Sociological diagnosis of the growing significance of bureaucracy and administration 
for all their ambivalence, did bring certain service occupations out from the shadow under which they had remained throughout the 19th century. But the other domain of service work, that devoted to the care, support, and education of others, continued to exist below the threshold of public perception. This could be the reason why labor continued to be conceptualized as an activity that plays out between a subject and an object, be it the product to be manufactured or a calculator or typewriter. What remained thoroughly unacknowledged was that labor can frequently assume the form of a communicative activity, whilst that, whilst certainly materially mediated, is directed primarily at other persons. The ongoing marginalization of personal services had a particular effect on those fields of activity that were occupied primarily by women. Not that the female workforce at the beginning of the 20th century was predominantly occupied in these sectors. Due to persisting conditions of widespread deprivation, women were still active in all areas of economic life, but the majority were employed in the private households of the wealthy bourgeoisie, tasked with cooking, cleaning, educating children, and making purchases for the home. Because the meager wages, not only of this domestics, but also of female secretaries and sales clerks employed in stores and offices, did not suffice to provide for a family, the national economy of the 19th century was already in the grip of an insidiously circular logic of which Joan Scott has provided an apt analysis. The underpayment of jobs performed by women was explained by the lower productivity of these ancillary activities. And this in turn was meant to serve as proof that they were in fact less arduous and beneficial than those carried out by men. The domain of female service jobs in private households, in merchandise, trade or hospitality, therefore remained not only theoretically unexplored, but almost publicly invisible terrain, which was regarded as having no economic significance. The daily experiences of denigration, authoritarian paternalism, unwanted sexual attention and personal harassment suffered by employed women may have found expression in penny dreadfuls, but not in the educational and cultural media of the time, let alone in the social sciences. The silent contempt for work concerned not with the manufacture of material assets, but with the procurement, maintenance, administration, and transportation of already existing items that began with Locke and Smith, was deepened by Hegel and Marx, and then had an enduring influence on the thought of the first half of the 20th century. When in her book, The Human Condition, Hannah Arendt set about analyzing the gradual rise to dominance of labor over communicative action in the public sphere, she distinguished only between labor, which, is, which resembles craftsmanship and work mediated by machines, without even so much as mentioning service work, a conceptual omission that bordered on the scandalous in which she later barely even registered. The following decades witnessed an initial, if half-hearted attempt to rescue personal services work 
from its marginalization. Yet this was due more to historical upheavals than any targeted militant efforts on the part of the domestic laborers themselves. This class, comprised of young men and women, mostly descendants of destitute peasants and working in healthcare, private households, and the hospitality industry, tended to be submissively resigned to their fate and thankful for any gainful employment. They were hardly in a position to attract the attention of the broader public and demand their recognition. It was the First World War in its socioeconomic consequences which ensured that at least a subset of such service work was brought to public attention and its social indispensability acknowledged. The care that thousands upon thousands of nurses provided to wounded soldiers made it clear to even the most stubborn members of the ruling classes that their self-sacrificing labor alone had prevented mass immerseration and death amongst the affected. Even if it had not previously been counted amongst the socially necessary occupations, the indispensability of this nursing and care work had to be recognized, at least for the duration of the war. Yet this new found interest proved short-lived and was revived only when the indispensable services of nurses and hospital aides once again became impossible to ignore. The failure to recognize their social significance was finally corrected only thanks to the overaging populations of Western societies. Without this being reflected in increased pay or public appreciation for these workers, most of whom today are drawn from poor foreign countries of the East or South America. Shortly after the First World War, domestic stuff too became the object of considerably greater attention, albeit for an entirely different reason. The absurd extent to which the significance of such work had previously been neglected can be seen in the fact that even in the first decade of the new century, such work constituted, by some distance, the largest category of employment in the motherland of capitalism, England. Even today, it is hard not to be incredulous when contemplating the sheer lack of curiosity about the everyday experiences and working conditions of this sector, despite its enormous size. 50%, as I said. However, it began to adjoin to enjoy a somewhat greater degree of visibility when, due to the general decrease in prosperity suffered across different countries after the First World War, the number of people employed in well-to-do households fell rapidly. Indeed, within a short period of time, the average number of domestic servants in such households shrank to one. The resultant rise in unemployment suddenly provoked a retrospective recognition, as though it had previously been a secret, of quite how many tasks, from cooking, dressing and serving to cleaning and educating children, had been performed by these individuals within the four walls of aristocratic and bourgeois houses. This swift decrease, decrease in the number of domestic staff in the 1920s would also trigger a process that increased the visibility of a type of work that had previously been absent from the list of socially necessary activities. 
With the departure of domestic stuff, women belonging to the affluent classes were suddenly forced to take on all those tasks for which some half a dozen subservient souls had previously been responsible. The kinds of domestic labor that working class women in the 19th century had frequently performed alongside their gainful employment, often with the aid of family members or neighbors, now became the responsibility of female members of the bourgeoisie too. The initial willingness to take on these tasks stemmed, of course, from internalized notions of typically feminine preferences and abilities, which had already taken hold in the cultural imagination of the 18th century. The prevailing ideology of the patriarchal age had it that men and women complemented one another by sticking to their respective domains, with females naturally suited to the tasks of the household and males having their natural place in the public, political and commercial world. Hegel put things succinctly, stating that, and I quote, the status of women is the housewife. With the exception of certain strands of socialism and the early women's movement, social consciousness has taken it for granted ever since that women possess a natural aptitude born of innate feelings of love and care for taking to domestic uh, chores with passion and enthusiasm. With the increasing incorporation of bourgeois women into the familial division of labor, this inherited ideology did not itself come under pressure, but its economic foundation and consequences were challenged. For already in the 1920s, the first representatives of the women's movement began to demand that domestic labor be assigned a greater social and economic value. The argument for the latter demand was that the men's wage should include a share for the domestic activities of the women, since this furnished the preconditions of his extra domestic labor. Even if such demands did not receive much of a hearing, either in parliaments or corresponding commissions, the question of the economic remuneration of private housework had nonetheless been placed on the agenda. It would be 50 years, however, before the topic would garner general attention in the public political domain and give a final impetus to a quite fundamental transformation of the concept of socially necessary labor. The deep-seated inability <clears throat> to perceive the necessary but unremunerated domestic tasks performed by women as labor was certainly due in part to its conceptual reduction to production and manufacturing. As we have seen, this restriction was indeed responsible for the considerable difficulties that the capitalism that saw itself as industrial had in perceiving and valuing all kinds of service work. Yet the utter blindness to the sheer amount of work performed by housewives had a second, at least equally significant underlying cause, which was bound up with another scarcely questioned premise of the classical concept of labor. In defining the concept, that is, political economy evaluated only that labor for which there was a quantitatively measurable, recognized demand in the marketplace. This conceptual linkage between 
social need, and market-based demand would later benefit the various services for which there was such economic demand in the 19th century, namely when the disregard for service, procurement, clean, cleaning and care work decreased. However, the same cannot be said for the unpaid labor performed by the housewife within her own four walls, which included cooking, cleaning and child rearing. This remained very much in the shadow of the traditional conception of labor, not only because household, household tasks seemed not to produce anything of economic value, but primarily because it was not the object of any evident market demand. It was the feminist campaign for paid housework in the 1970s, which brought this conceptual linkage into question. Even if its demand at the time was not primarily directed at payment per se, but instead des designed to make the gender-specific assignment, assignment of private domestic labor into a public scandal, it nevertheless worked to upset the previously unquestioned premises supporting the inherited picture of labor. For there was suddenly a new question on the agenda. Is it really appropriate to measure the social necessity of work one-sidedly in terms of labor market demand. With the explicit, explicit thematization of this decisive question, the concept of labor that had undergirded the fantasy world of capitalism from the 18th century at the very latest saw its final foundation collapse. So I come to the second part in which I now draw the conclusions from this very short history and will bring up the question, how then to define work, I mean, or social necessary labor. As is typical in such subversive moments, the dismantling of the old structure at the same time brought all the spurious components of the established concept of labor back to the surface. From the beginning, it had been possible to ascribe the capacity for value creation exclusively to object-producing activity only because the service work that functioned as its necessary precondition was kept out of view, dismissed as merely so many external factors. Yet the clearer it became both that this separation was purely artificial and how it had rendered invisible all those indispensable services surrounding the production process from transportation accountancy and use transmission to care work, cooking and child rearing, the more difficult it became to maintain a distinction between productive and non-productive labor. A similar fate met the premise that all real labor is realized between human being and object, as suggested by the narrow focus on the manufacture, manufacture of material goods. The gradual adoption of care work into the category of social necessary labor must already have made clear that the latter could also consist of performances directed at persons and the promotion of their individual ends. The goal of such labor thus had a quite different shape and determination than the classical concept of labor would like to acknowledge. Its purpose is not invariably that of forming an object so as to produce a useful commodity or consumer product. Rather, 
much of the purpose of care work can be rebuilt only by taking up the requisite communicative perspective. Only then, for example, can one know which instrumental activity might be the most appropriate in a given instance of aiding another person. Neither the old distinction between manual and intellectual labor, nor the more recent one between material and immaterial activity does justice to this special case of personal services. Here, a communicative process, namely of achieving empathy with the person depending upon another support, is necessarily prior to any instrumental consideration, the search for appropriate means. If one adds administrative services as a separate category, it is probably even sensible to distinguish between three different activity profiles that are required for the totality of social labor today. Processing natural or man-made objects with the aim of producing useful commodities, interacting with other persons for the purpose of caregiving, consultancy and teaching, and operating with symbols with the aim of calculating, analyzing and processing data beneficial to the administration of social and economic processes. This threefold division finally frees labor from the traditional vice of the human nature relation. Socially necessary activity now has to include, include tasks that seem to be of overarching value for society, be they performed within a straightforwardly object-related, symbolic or communicative framework. The feminist challenge to unpaid houseworks finally also brought down the third pillar of the previously dominant conception of labor. If it could be convincingly shown that countless necessary tasks were performed in private households without any compensation in the form of wages, then the economic notion that the socially required volume of labor could only ever be measured in terms of market demand was false. As soon as this notion had been dispensed with, one could no longer ignore the countless jobs performed day in, day out by an unpaid workforce, all of which were indispensable for the reproduction of social life, be it cooking for one's family, grandparents rearing and educating grandchildren, or voluntary social care. Once all three corrections had been made, abandoning the distinction between productive and unproductive activities, severing the notion of genuine labor from the supposedly necessary relation to an object, and accepting other measures of the social necessity of labor beside the market, the following seemed to become clear. All the routine performances in a society that contribute to maintaining the universally favored components of a given life form have to count as labor in the sense of socially essential activities. Nevertheless, this relaxing of the concept of labor so as to incorporate previously excluded activities brought with it a non-inconsiderable problem. For now that financially unremunerated performances were also assigned to the domain of social labor, it became extremely difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish that domain from that of performances undertaken 
for purely private reasons. It is not so easy, that is, to decide in advance whether the wider community might assign a sufficiently high value to collecting vinyl records or playing music in the private company of friends, say, that it would willingly expend labor and afford to support them. Stretching the concept of labor too far invites the danger of encompassing anything undertaken out of purely personal interest or subjective inclination. Yet any preemptive narrowing of the concept runs the opposite risk, namely of excluding activities that on closer inspection turn out to be indispensable for maintaining a given cultural life form. In the second part of my reflection, I therefore want to attempt to, attempt to strike a balance between these two tendencies. The key to solving the, this problem perhaps already lies in the formulation I adopted just a moment ago in order to capture the scope of the broader conception of labor. I said that all performances essential to maintaining those comp components of social life that are currently taken to be valuable ought to be regarded as socially necessary. The concept of taken to be valuable cannot, of course, be tailored to the perspective of a private individual. The question is not what any person selected at random might regard as valuable in social life, but rather of what a social community takes to be so valuable in their life form that they deem it necessary collectively or cooperatively expend labor and energy to preserve it. To be sure, in many respects, taking up such a perspective means navigating uncertain terrain. For neither is it clear what a social community is and where its boundaries lie, nor can one simply assume that its members do in fact share sufficiently many conceptions of value. For our purposes, we can say provisionally that we can speak of a social community wherever a large group of individuals, thanks to similar educational backgrounds, have reached a point at which they broadly agree in their normative judgments and orient themselves in terms of roughly the same values in their everyday life. We can now say of such communities, irrespective of whether we are concerned with local, national or transnational groups, that they will also generally agree on which elements of their own life form are worth maintaining and protecting. And correspondingly, they may also possess extremely similar notions of which activities are required to preserve these valued components of their culture. From the perspective of such a social community, it is relatively easy to determine where the boundary lies between socially necessary and merely private activities performed from purely individual motives. Activities are necessary and thus the responsibility of the community as a whole when they are generally thought to maintain those components of the shared life world the community deems to be, to be of value. By contrast, performances that are generally judged to be products of personal preferences and thus to mirror merely individual value judgments ought to be considered private matters. In his philosophy of right, Hegel wanted to make the same division 
between social and private performances, between work for communal ends and activities serving merely individual purposes in another simpler form. Somebody occupied with socially necessary labor must, I quote, determine their knowledge, volition, and action in a universal way, whereas private activities are not subject to the constraint of having to adhere to universally or communal valid standards. In what follows, I mean to apply a combination of both criteria in speaking of socially necessary labor or social labor for short. This term is intended to encompass all activities that in the eyes of a community serve its overall welfare and which are therefore subject to universally positive standards of the appropriate and inappropriate. Thus, cooking or childcare in private households count as social labor just as much as paid employment in a factory or office. For both kinds of work involve activities that pursue an end deemed valuable by the community. Furthermore, either informal or legally determined standards apply to all those performances. In the case of cooking, say, one has to consider commonly accepted nutritional requirements. Childcare has to be conducted today with the well-being of the child in mind. And contractually agreed employment has to abide by legally stipulated regulations. All these normative constraints fall away, however, as soon as some activity is performed purely out of personal inclination or private enjoyment. Quite independently of whether it's do-it-yourself, angling or playing music in a small group, whilst participants of course have to abide by the general legal framework, they neither have to realize socially universalizable ends nor respect general standards of performance. In a sense, one can proceed as one sees fit. To this extent, a society's responsibility to be attentive to whether some activity fulfills collectively agreed standards and to how it should best be organized lapses in such cases. Just as Hegel suggests, the distinguishing characteristic of social labor, labor is that one determines their knowledge, volition, and action in a universal way by sticking to the conventionally or legally fixed standards of good and appropriate conduct. Before com confirming the concept of social labor, I have just outlined as the true result of this brief reconstruction of a 200-year-long uh, process of social self-enlightenment, I first need to dis dispel a possible reservation. It might sound as though my account encourages an adherence to whichever matter-of-fact distinction between social and private activities are operative in a given society. The only labor it designates as social is the labor that a given society on the basis of its current value conceptions recognizes as contributions to the general welfare. And it is easy to see how fragile and short-lived such boundaries can be if we only consider that around a mere half century ago, cooking, cleaning, and child rearing in private households were still a long way from being understood 
as in the common social interest. Cultural distinctions between necessary labor and purely personal pursuits are in fact always fairly fluid, suspect, subject as they are to the vicissitudes of continual contests over the interpretation of the socially valuable. What is today regarded as a purely private diversion might tomorrow be esteemed as an activity of universal significance and utility such that the community ought from now on to assume a responsibility for its recognition, organization and support. Nevertheless, such shifts in the moral economy of a society take place within much narrower limits than it might seem at first glance. Only very few of the activities that today count as expressions of purely personal inclination pursue ends that, even with the great effort of the imagination, might ever really become those of society as a whole. Paradoxically, the reason for this is the modern fact of cultural pluralism. The more diverse, that is, the ethical beliefs and practices of a society become, the harder it becomes for merely private activities to be recognized by a majority as indispensable to collective well-being. The same cultural pluralism that seems to demand the continual proliferation of ever more private pursuits simultaneously prevents their overhasty transformation to activities of general interest. The more cultural lifestyles in a given society diverge from one another, the harder it becomes for initially private pursuits to be seen as socially indispensable contributions, almost as a matter of necessity. To this extent, modern societies leave only a relatively narrow space for radical revaluations of the social character of different activities. Before they could be valued as social labor, they would first have to be recognized as vital to social reproduction from a universalizable perspective. The fear that my reformulation of the concept of labor fails to take account of possible reinterpretations of the general welfare and thus tends to, be, to a certain conventionalism is therefore unfounded. To be sure, it is important to keep cultural transformation of this kind in view. They should not be categorically excluded in advance. But there are very few factors that might initiate such changes. Increasing, increasing pluralism means that the space for social revaluation of candidate activities may be coming even smaller. Rather, we might expect to witness a future development in the opposite direction. Performances whose social indispensability has thus far simply been taken for granted may once again lose their status and be demoted to the no man's land of endlessly many private occupations. The fate of these professions would not so much be extinction at the hands of economic developments as devaluation of, as a result of societies coming to adopt different ends. All things considered, there is no reason to accuse the concept of social labor proposed here of being too closely linked to the dominant conventions of a given society. The theory does not seek to certify whatever the majority deems either necessary or expendable. 
it has its own tools for examining such distinctions and, as the case may be, for finding them appropriate. The only activities that ought to be valued as socially beneficial labor are those that, through the continual back and forth between social conventions and theoretical deliberations, prove to be vital to the survival of a cultural life form. If you look back over just the past two centuries, the scope of labor understood in just this sense has expanded considerably. Today, societies have a corresponding responsibility to develop new labor policies, which can secure decent, dignified and satisfying conditions for all those performances they judge indispensable to their own reproduction. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Honneth, for a very thought-provoking and also informative lecture. Okay, so we have Paul Gilardi, who's going to start off. The question I have concerns, where exactly would the notion of epistemic labour fit into this ameliorative account that you're articulating? Because what I think might be worth thinking about is the way in which epistemic labour, particularly in the idea of people of colour or minorities in general, having to experience a burden of having to explain feelings of oppression, realities of oppression to people in dominant recognition structures, they are exploited in that type of labour act. Um, it's, it's almost as if their identity prejudicial status is subject to all of these power relations which produce these recognition deficits, or even in cases, you know, further to your 2007 paper, they are subject to ideological recognition. If they perform the task well, like an, like an Uncle Tom, for example, they receive praise and acclaim. Equally, if they don't perform the task well, they are punished with a view to even being invisibilized. So I just wonder where this fits into this account. Yeah, thank you very much, Paul. That's an extremely interesting question. I think. I can only express my, my first intuitions with regard to that kind of specific epistemic labor uh, you are referring to. I mean, when I understand you correctly, you refer this, that kind of labor to those activities that, and, and that are probably partly epistemic activities, partly practical activities that are necessary to organize a social movement that is uh, trying to overcome certain injustices of any kind. And we can think of many, many movements that were in the past in need of such epistemic investments, epistemic labor, and of certain movements today that are in need of such theoretical work, critique of ideologies, identifying certain structural reasons for oppression, and so on and so on. This is all, you might say, epistemic work. I would hesitate to call that kind of work, which the importance of which I clearly see and appreciate, to call that kind of work socially necessary. But I, I mean, I hesitate. Yeah. But uh, my first intuition would be to say that can't be the kind of work that is valued by the whole community 
as being necessary, because then one would have to applaud a concept that even the work against one own, one's own communal life, as it is now, take as being socially necessary. I think it even would not benefit the social movements that are engaged in such, in such epistemic labor. Such epistemic labor is meant to be resistant to the social order as it is given. So it is aiming for changing the this, this social culture. But again, I'm a little bit hesitating. I think it would be some, somewhat strange to call those political activities, be they epistemic or be they practical, socially necessary. As I said, it would not even be beneficial for the social movements, in my view. I mean, there is an interesting question in the background of, of your concerns. Where does the idea of social necessity of certain performances start and where does it end? I think it ends where there can't be a consensus or consent with regard to whether activities are constitutive for our given cultural life form. So any kind of political activities and epistemic performances that are performed in social movements of whatever kind, be, be it leftist movements, anti-racist movements, even right-wing populist movements, they also are engaged in epistemic work or epistemic labor, can't be seen as socially necessary because it would mean that the society as a whole would have to take care of these performances, which would be strange. Then the society would take care of a kind of activity that is probably out of very good reasons, directed against its own given life form. So it might be that such epistemic activities lead to new concepts of labor or to widening of the concept of social labor as a result of uh, its own success. But at the time, for the time given, I think one, one should take this kind of activities as being socially necessary. Thank you. Okay, David, you're next. Yes, thank you. My question, it's also about definitional boundaries, I think. Um, and I want to bring back in economically based definitions of labor, which it seems to me that Professor Honnett's talk is an attempt to challenge the definition of labor based only on transformation of objects, to bring in the social, the intersubjective and all the rest. And the question that comes to mind for me is the following. Does his definition of social labor therefore exclude market activities which fail to meet the community standard of universalizability? In other words, is there somehow inbuilt into his notion of social labor, a kind of a value critique which um, would provide a hierarchy for judging economically validated activity. He mentioned vinyl records at one point in his talk, and that might be an example to fix on. But there might be many others. I would like to defend my own, my own proposal for a boundary as long as possible. So let's start with the 
police and certain other types of performances that are today seen as being necessary social labor and do count as activities the society has to take care of. And with, with, with the expression the society has to take care of, I mean not necessarily that it has to take care of the uh, renumeration of that kind of activity, but it has to spend thoughts and a certain care on how to organize it. Yeah, how to organize it. So because we are living in a society where I think we in the West, we live normally in social communities or in national communities, I think, uh, today, or in a wider European community, where police work is from the majority definitely seen as socially necessary, I would include it without excluding for the future that there might be re-evaluations. Sure. I mean, we might come to a point where we think that police work has to be organized completely differently than it is organized today, that it needs other kinds of controlling work done by police forces today, so that we will come to a re-evaluation of those performances. But for the time given, I would say that there are many problematic jobs. Probably police is not even the best example, yeah? But we can think of, I mean, criminals I take out. Criminals, that's not a performance that is seen by a social community as it is given now as a valuable activity helping to reproduce uh, our cultural life form. But take people which are making money from selling houses for enormously high prices on a market. That's definitely not an activity I appreciate. And I'm sure there are many people which don't, which do not appreciate those performances. Making money with this, with the selling of apartments or houses. But as long as there is no, not a majority that devaluates that kind of performances, we have to take it as socially necessary. I think what theory can, can do best is to propose certain re-evaluations at the moment. For example, that we should probably invest more, more activities with the production of, I don't know, harmless goods than with weapons. Yeah. So we might, as theoreticians and as, and as intellectuals and political activists, we may claim that the production of weapons is a very problematic activity. But as long as the majority does not accept this and tries to overcome the production of weapons, it is seen by the majority as a social necessary performance. And therefore, the society has to take care of it in the way it thinks best. So that's the one side. Then we have many, I, I call them private activities that are performed with cultural convictions or religious convictions that have an enormous importance for many, many subgroups in our societies. Praying was the example by Maeve. I mean, I can easily see that this is an extremely worthwhile activity for a specific religious community. But I don't believe that a society that is based on certain secular conceptions of tolerance, freedom, uh, 
liberty and all this can take such praying as being a necessary activity seen by the whole society as being necessary or the majority of the society as, as, as being necessary. There, there were probably times 300 years ago when the society believed in its majority believed that praying is a worthwhile activity that needs and has to be respected as being uh, necessary for the social good or for the social welfare. And as long as that was the case, sure, one would believe that the social community had to take care of it. Yeah, They had to take care of uh, that kind of activity in the sense it had to invest money into rooms for praying and so on and so on. But as, as soon as there is no longer a kind of religious consent in a society, in, in a social community, I don't think that praying can be taken as a necessary activity of that kind. I don't want to devaluate market activities uh, as such. I mean, definitely not. What I want is I want to open the concept of labor for activities for which there is no, at the moment, no demand on the market or by the market. There might be market activities, I said that already, that will be in the future seen as being so problematic that the community agrees not to take it any longer as necessary. And necessary always means necessary for the reproduction of those elements of our life form we take as being valuable. Yeah. So there might be many market activities that in the future will be taken as not necessary because they don't help us to recreate those valuable elements of our life form. But I don't intend to operate with independent standards for good or bad market activities. This is not, not part of my own proposal. The only proposal I was making is we should disconnect the concept of labor from its linkage to, on the one side, manufacturing, I mean, physical objects or the produ production of physical objects, and from market demand, and from the strange reference to productivity, a, a very problematic concept of productivity. Yeah? Productivity was understood in the tradition by everyone I was quoting from, from Locke uh, to Smith to Hegel, even to Marx, productivity was understood in terms of the production of goods. And I think that this is a, a problematic concept of productivity, which reduces productivity to the increase of the number of goods in a society. Whereas if we are accepting other concept of productivity or productive labor, not bound to the production of physical goods or physical objects, then it becomes clear that there are many, many activities and performances that are productive in the sense that they are contributing to the maintenance of the valuable aspect of our cultural life form. So implicitly, I'm also proposing a change in our understanding of productivity. I mean, that's one result of, of the proposal. I don't know whether the, I answered the question sufficiently. I can see that there are many problems with, with boundaries, Yeah, how to exactly establish the boundaries. 
Thank you very much. Uh, we have uh, three uh, more. First, John Baker. In a way, this is, is related to those other questions. I think maybe even broader. In an advanced capitalist society with a huge diversity of values and tastes, and with a, a level of production that goes way beyond the production to, to meet what everyone agrees is everyone's basic needs, there's no agreement whatsoever on all the different things that people want to buy in the market. Right? I mean, one person wants to buy vinyl records, one person wants to buy a massage, one person wants to buy a, buy a car or a bicycle or whatever. The whole point is that the market is designed to meet a huge variety of tastes and values that are not shared by everyone. So this is like the parallel to the point that you've made about domestic labor being ignored in the past, but it seems to be a kind of, I'm just confused here, really. I mean, does this vast array of activity that people perform in the capitalist market to, to satisfy private tastes that are not shared by the majority of people count as work or not? I think as long as we don't manage to devalue specific preferences that we in our circles may take as being strange, wrong, distasteful, or whatever, as long as we don't manage to, to devaluate them such that there is a majority proposing to close certain markets, yeah? as long as we don't manage that, yes, these count as necessary labors. In my after my my proposal, yeah. So th there might be very absurd uh, preferences. There might be absurd activities in our view that should not deserve the notion socially necessary labor. But for the time given, as long as there is sufficient demand for such activities and performances, yes, they count. After my proposal, as socially necessary. I mean, I see the downside of this, yeah, but I don't see a way out of these dilemmas or problematic proposal if we don't want to make our concept of labor too normative or too loaded, normatively loaded. Yeah, I mean that's another strategy to follow. Yeah, we we could we could probably follow another strategy, and we could say we should call socially necessary only those kinds of performances that from a certain value perspective we take as being valuable. This is not the strategy I'm proposing. Yeah? I'm saying what the majority, what the social community, and one has to add in its current majority, takes as being valuable components of our life form, all those performances necessary for reproducing them have to be taken as necessary. So uh, again, I see the difficulties you are referring to, and I'm, I, I think I'm on your side, yeah, with the distaste for certain performances on the market. But I don't see a strategy to overcome these dilemmas by giving a too normative definition of labor. On the one hand, you're saying to me, as long as the society doesn't forbid certain activities, then they're socially necessary. But you said just before to Maeve that the minority tastes for things like brain and so on, which aren't forbidden, 
don't count as socially necessary. That just seems to me to be contradictory. For example, look at production of smoking materials, cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, I'm a smoker too, but against my own personal habits, I might say there will come relatively soon a consent that the production of cigarettes should be forbidden. I mean, there is already a devaluation going on. Yeah, the cigarette industries or smoke smoke industry—I don't know how you call them—are uh, coming into heavy problems. Yeah like the production of traditional cars is coming into problems because of certain uh, reconsideration of car production. Yeah, We think they have to be produced differently. We even think that there should be less cars on the street. So there might be huge cultural changes influencing our understanding of the value elements of our life world. But I think to make it too dependent on uh, not shared values or to make it too dependent on values that are shared only by certain subgroups in a society produces a lot of other problems. And this I want to avoid. Yeah, Therefore, I have to operate with something like a reference to the, the majority at a certain period. Thank you uh, for the clarification. So, Isabella, you're next. So, thank you for this interesting talk, um, first of all. And um, I'm currently writing my master's thesis on unpaid care work as a security issue. So um, I'm very much interested also in the feminist perspective of how unpaid care work has still not become a labor that is recognized um, generally nor in Western cultures and not to speak of um, developing countries, especially in Latin America, also due to cultural issues, of course. So my question is more it's kind of an interwoven question because I see liberalization as this ambivalent issue for women because on the one side it created job opportunities and the sense of independence, the sense of earning something, however, just in cheap labor sectors. And this time that has to be brought up for um, domestic care is, is still not met. So women are still in the position to do both as well as don't really have the recognition of both. And I just don't really see, or my question is, where does the state also intervene into something like that in giving an, an incentive? Because as you said before, it's also the issue of this shared work, like what is shared work and also the issue of responsibility. Because in, if we talk about work, it's a lot of times we take up responsibilities to, to do something for other people, but at the end, care work is just this concept. We do things or we, we, we don't produce. It's, it's something we do for others. And this responsibility a lot of women take on is just not really met with recognition and also what you said with this need of empathy, what I really share. And I, I just don't see where empathy is being taught. And it's such a very important tool also in, in every social manner. So I don't know if my, my question is clear enough, but like which role does the state have in this? And also how do we define work and family? Like what definition has family for us still? Thank you, Isabella. Axel, I'm going to add a question. There was a question in the chat 
um, which I think should be asked. And it's also about care work. It's from Clemence. Uh, and she asks, she worries about the risk of commodification, potentially intrinsic to acknowledging care work or love work or love, you know, work in this area, solidarity work as labor. So uh, do you share this worry? And if so, to what extent? Yeah, thank you for both questions. I don't know whether I, ha I have a sufficient answer, but that has a little bit to do with the transitions. Um, I think uh, our societies are momentarily going through with respect to uh, the concept of labor. Uh, I mean, the first prerequisite I saw in order to at least recognize that care is work, yeah, is to decouple labor from the reference to physical objects and to make clear to ourselves. And, and that, I have to say, is something not easy to prepare us for uh, overcoming the concept of work that since almost 200 years had a certain linkage to physical objects. Think of Hannah Arendt, which is a good example. How easily she thinks that work of any kind, whether it's labor or work in her own words, has to do with objects. That's so deeply rooted in our cultural tradition that it is one important step to overcome that internal linkage, linkage between work and objects, or that work is always between humans and nature. That's another cultural idea deeply rooted in certain traditional concept of labor. That's the first step. And I think we are at the moment going through a process in our at least Western societies where we are overcoming, and probably even in the majority, these traditional concepts of labor, where we start to realize that labor can take another form than being concerned with the production of objects or with the um, with bureaucratic services. So we start to realize that there are other laboring activities than those that take place between a subject and an object. That's a first huge accomplishment if we manage that. I leave completely open, at least in this paper, I'm, I'm talking about that in, in, a, in, in a broader concept because I'm now trying to, to write a book on democracy and work. I leave here completely open what I mean with the idea that because the care work in the household or in families is now started to, to be taken as labor, therefore society has to take care of it. Yeah has to take care of it means something like, first, it, had, it has to put up standards for performing those activities. And we are already doing that. Yeah, For example, we are forbidding in, edu in private education that children are hit. Yeah, That's something unthinkable 60 years ago or 80 years ago, where people thought it's completely up to parents how they educate their children. Now we are starting to intervene in those processes. And that has also to do with the fact that we take these kinds of performances as being labor. Therefore, we have to take care, has to take, take care of it as a society, be it by the state or by the, by the community or whatever. I, I'm not saying something specific here. 
if we start to think about how to organize this kind of labor, which is now seen as labor, and therefore the society has to take care, take care of it. I'm not making proposals here. I think in the future, and this is now completely open. I mean, does it mean that we have to commodify that kind of labor so that we create a market demand for it, so that we are paying it, and therefore there is suddenly a market demand? I think that is something I never would uh, argue for. I think the commodification of care work, I mean, there, there is commodified care work in hospitals, for sure. But the care work done and performed within the private household is not yet commodified. And I'm definitely not for the commodification of such private, or of such care work in the private household. But I think we have to take, we have to think about how better to organize it so that it is not longer only the responsibility of the private woman in the normal case or the parents or the household members. I think we have to think about new forms of socializing those performances to reintegrate it more than it is visible today into the social community. How to do it? I only have certain vague proposals to make. Yeah, I mean, how to integrate that specific kind of care work taking place in, in families and in private realms, how to take care of that besides simply to think of paying it. I think we have to think about strategies to reincorporate it in the social community. One historical example was Red Vienna. I mean, Red Vienna, the experiments in Vienna in the 20s, the socialist government in Vienna, in the city of Vienna, they tried to think about something like re-socializing private performances within families into the community. So I think we have to rethink uh, these alternatives, and I think we have to come up with new concepts. We have to experiment in the future with uh, strategies, how to re-socialize re these kinds of care activities. But the first step is to rethink of those performances as labor, and with it as a socially necessary uh, labor, and with it taking us as a social community, as being responsible for how to organize it, not to leave it simply to the women or the men in the household. I mean, it's, it's like with John Dewey's concept of the public. As soon as the public thinks of a problem as being of interest for the public, the public has to take care of it. So I think in the moment in which we take certain performances as labor, in the sense of necessary labor, we have to take care of it. And we are not prepared to take care of it because we have a 200-year history behind us that took that kind of performance as being completely private and not even deserving the notion labor. As soon as that is changing, I think we are now in a process where it changes, we have to take care of it. And we have to think about alternatives, how to organize it. And I think in certain states of Western societies, that is already in the making. I mean, certain national states, um, even in Germany, a relatively conservative government, they are engaged at least. They start to be engaged with rethinking 
uh, housework and how to organize it better. This is going to be the last question because Axel has been talking and answering questions for two hours now. It's a long time. and we've, uh, So Maria, the uh, honor is yours. Thank you. I'll make my question very brief. Thank you very much for a very interesting paper. I thought your suggestion that we rethink the notion of productivity and production uh, was very interesting. But I was surprised that you are not also suggesting that maybe we can rethink the notion of object and goods produced. I mean, in philosophy, we are used to thinking about abstract objects as being objects that allows a space for introducing that idea into the production. So, so it's just an additional strand to what you were saying. Yeah, thank you. Probably I'm operating too conventionally here. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm operating with a distinction that has a longer tradition, for example, a distinction between interaction and instrumental activities, or communication and instrumental action. And what I'm proposing is that for a long time, our concept of labor was restricted only to instrumental activities. And now we are learning slowly, but we are learning it, that there are forms of labor that don't have the structure of instrumental activities, but of communicative activities. Now, this is the way I'm proposing. You, you could probably go another way, which is interesting. You might widen the concept of objects so that there remains the relationship to an object, but the object might have very different qualities and characteristics. And then you might say care work is of a specific kind because the object is this related to, is completely different to the natural object or the physical object. It is a living object and therefore it has to take another form. It has to invest empathy because there is an object that is in need of understanding, of being understood, of being felt with or something like that. So that would be an interesting other strategy, yeah? In, instead of distinguishing uh, instrumental and communicative activity as I did, saying that labor is now also including communicative activities, you would um, really go the other path and you would keep the relation to objects, mm -hmm. yeah? but widening the concept of objects. I mean, that's an interesting proposal. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes in this series, so do subscribe on whatever platform you use. Leave us a review, tell your friends about us. You can also watch videos of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal History of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.